You are listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast presented by NCQA. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Inside Healthcare, NCQA's podcast. I'm Lawrence Green. Today, we feature Dr. Daniel Alford, professor of medicine at Boston University and director of the Safer Competent Opioid Prescribing Education of Pain program, otherwise known as Scope of Pain program. We talk about the Scope of Pain program and managing patients on opioids. Let's get started. Dr. Alpha, can you briefly describe the Scope of Pain program, the focus, the target, audience, et cetera, and how the program has evolved over the years? Yeah, sure. So Scope of Pain, or Safer and Competent Opioid Prescribing Education, um, actually started back in 2013, and it was part of the FDA REMS program, or Risk Evaluation and Mitigation Strategy program, where they asked all of the manufacturer of opioids to fund uh, prescriber education. And we were fortunate enough to get um, one of those grants. We actually got the first grant. And since 2013, we've trained about 190,000 folks around the country. And it started off as it's always been a case-based presentation. It started off as a three-hour program, and now it's down to two hours. And initially, it was really geared towards primary care providers and chronic pain management and the use of opioids and chronic pain. Mm-hmm. Um, but it has evolved to include acute pain, which includes you know acute pain in the emergency department as well as post-operative pain and chronic pain. And for those individuals that run into problems, um, how to diagnose an opioid use disorder, and how to manage it. So that's how it's evolved. And I will also say that it's always been case-based, and initially it had one ending. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we'd get feedback like, um, that's not the way it happens in my patients. And so we have developed four different endings. So now scope of pain ends in four different ways. One way is to rotate the person off the opioid they're on and onto a new opioid Mm -hmm. and they're successful. The second scenario is the rotation didn't work and they're not successful. And we talked about how to do an involuntary taper. Mm -hmm. Um, The third is someone who wants to just get off the opioids because they're feeling stigmatized. So we talk about a voluntary taper. And then the fourth is someone who actually has an overdose and is diagnosed with an opioid use disorder, and how do we manage their pain and their opioid use disorder concurrently? So we now have four different endings that we discuss with scope of pain. Obviously, COVID-19 has made it more challenging because we're not always seeing our patients in person. In fact, most of the time we're seeing them via telemedicine. And we talk about the DEA's um, rulings to allow us to continue to prescribe opioids in the setting of televisits or telemedicine visits, Mm -hmm. and even to start an opioid in someone who you've never met in person, but only done a telemedicine visit. And so we do talk about what the uh, allowances are now in the current practice environment to to continue or to start somebody, to continue opioids in patients who are benefiting and how to start opioids in someone who's never been on them in the absence of in-person visits. Got it. And what are some of the major challenges or barriers you see in opioid prescribing today? And why is a program like this needed in the first place? Can you just go into a little bit of the background into that as well? Yeah. So it's one of the most challenging things that we do in medicine. That is to treat pain 
and, the, and in particular, using opioids in a more judicious, safer way. So what do I mean? Well, most things that we do in clinical medicine, there are objective measurements for benefit, right? So you're treating hypertension, you measure the blood pressure, you know, if you've made an impact with the medication or treatment that you're offering. Um, diabetes, we can measure blood sugar, hemoglobin A1C, again, an objective measure to see how we're doing. Mm -hmm. With pain, we're basing the success or failure of our treatment on very subjective evidence, right? So it's the patient who says they feel better. How do you know if their function is improving? How do you know if their quality of life is improving? How do you measure those things? Although there is a validated three questions that we can ask people um, called the PEG, which stands for pain, enjoyment of life, and general activity. It's got its limitations too. I mean, it's yeah. not a perfect scale. Mm -hmm. And so how do you know if the patient's getting better? Um, you have, it's basically their report. And then the same thing with the flip side, that is with harm. Again, if you're putting someone on a medication for their hypertension and say it has uh, an adverse effect of involving, you know, kidney function, you measure kidney function by blood testing and you can determine whether or not the patient is suffering harm. Well, how do you know if the person on opioids is suffering harm? How do you know if they've developed an addiction or they're running into problems? And so these are, again, very subjective things. So both the benefits and harms are subjective and but we need to base our treatment or discontinuation of treatment on these subjective findings. Mm. And how do you manage patients who are currently on long-term opiates or high-dose opiates? And what are the risks associated with providing that care? Yeah, so, um, so I think there are a couple of ways to look at this. One, I believe we now have a true appreciation for the risk of high-dose opioids. Um, and high doses is defined differently by different groups. The CDC defines it as greater than or equal to 90 morphine milligram equivalents, um, but some states have you know, defined it as 100 or 120. Some go as low as 50. I mean, there's no magic number. The bottom line is the higher the opioid, the more risk there is. And, mm -hmm. and so I think we're the low hanging fruit here is we're just not putting people on those high doses anymore. I mean, gone are the days, I believe, where they should be that we're just willy nilly escalating the dose to try to get a handle on someone's pain. We're now kind of stopping at much lower doses. And I think that's good um, because there really, really isn't great evidence supporting the benefit of high dose opioids. And we certainly now know about some of the risk. Mm -hmm. The problem is with people who are already on these doses and, um, you know, I explained to them that he was well-intentioned. The physician who put you on that high-dose opioid at the time thought that they were doing the right thing. And that was kind of standard of care to kind of escalate the dose until you've achieved benefit as long as there's no evidence of, you know, sedation or respiratory depression. That's no longer the case. We've learned a lot about the risk. And so I talked to patients about the the benefits of getting on a lower dose, because mm -hmm. frankly, there probably isn't much analgesic benefit of being on these higher doses. And we certainly know from some studies that patients who are willing and able to taper down or get down to half their current dose, um, that their pain and function 
remain the same. Oh, wow. Um, so I think, hmm. yeah, so I think we really can't, and I want to emphasize that I'm talking about patients who are voluntarily willing and able to de- do that taper, mm-hmm. as opposed to someone who says, no, I do not want to get off this dose that I'm on. Oh, I see. And you think it's in their best interest, so you do an involuntary taper. No one knows what the um, benefits of that are, and it's probably not near what the benefits are when someone says, yes, I'll work with you and I'll get on a lower dose. But when mm-hmm. someone is voluntarily willing and able to taper down, you can feel pretty good about getting them to at least half their dose and they should do just fine. So I talked about the high dose opioids, but in terms of you know long-term opioids, that also uh, brings up some important points. And that is, um, you know, I've heard people say there's no evidence supporting the use of opioids for chronic pain. And that's not true. Uh, We have systematic reviews, meta-analyses that show a benefit of opioids versus placebo in very high-quality studies. However, the follow-up ends at six months. Um, So what happens after six months? Nobody knows. And so usually we think of long-term opioids as greater than three months, but we have patients on opioids for years. And the bottom line is there's no evidence. We just, it hasn't been studied. Um, now, there was one study that was done in 2018 that had a 12-month follow-up, and it was a randomized clinical trial, um, which found that there was no benefit of opioids over non-opioids. Hmm. However, when you look at the methods, um, there are some problems, in my mind, in terms of generalizability. That is, does this study apply to my patient who's on opioids for their chronic pain? And the problem is it doesn't really, because first, they excluded patients who were already on opioids for chronic pain, so they couldn't enroll in this study. So there's already something different about an adult with chronic pain who's not currently on opioids, who are then going to you know, be studied, opioids versus non-opioids. Mm-hmm. And secondly, um, of those people who were eligible, who are not on opioids, who had chronic pain, 89% said, uh, no thanks, I don't want to be uh, in this study. So the 11% who said, yes, fine, I'll be randomized to an opioid versus non-opioid and be blinded in terms of what I'm getting, um, there was no difference in terms Mm. of opioids versus non-opioids. So it is a fairly select group of individuals Mm -hmm. who would apply, you know, who I could generalize that study result to. Not to say that the study wasn't well done. It was really well done. It's always a question, though, of generalizability. So sort of a basic question, who typically are prescribe opioids and, you know, what kind of symptoms do they have? What sort of illnesses or, you know, what do they typically need help with? Um, and is it, are there particular groups of people who typically are prescribed versus others that don't receive that, those, uh, prescriptions? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great question. So, um, yeah, so the CDC guideline in, in 2016 said, you know, opioids should never be the first choice. Um, and I would argue that it was never the first choice, that, um, that it was always the last choice. And therein lies the problem, because when it's the last choice and when you've got subjective measures of benefit and harm, where do you go from there if the patient is still having problems? You know? And mm-hmm. so we, we were taught to just increase the dose until the pain went away or as long as the patient could tolerate it. And so, um, but opioids should never be the first choice. So let's just take a step back for a moment. Yeah. 
um, there are two types of pain, right? There's acute pain and there's chronic pain. And acute pain is really a life-sustaining symptom. We need to feel acute pain in order to prevent further harm as well as um, to allow ourselves to heal. So it's a life-sustaining symptom. And um, we now know that non-opioids, anti-inflammatory medications in particular, are quite effective for acute pain because there is an inflammatory component to trauma, including mm -hmm. surgery. And so we now know that these medications actually work quite well. But in the cases of severe trauma or, you know, major surgery, opioids are absolutely indicated um, in the you know, post-operative setting, but we shouldn't be giving 30-day supplies anymore that most patients, um, their pain is going to get better as they heal, and their opioid you know, sh should only be continued for as long as they need it, and it should be only you know, probably less than a week or maybe three days. Mm -hmm. um, so we're being much more judicious in our kind of acute pain uh, management with opioids. First, not everyone needs an opioid. And second, when someone does need an opioid, we shouldn't give, you know, long durations up to seven days is plenty for most people, realizing that there are some people who might need more than that and people who need less than that. Chronic pain um, is a whole nother um, situation. It's, it's a completely different problem. Chronic pain is not beneficial. It's actually maladaptive. Uh, it's a maladaptive um, signaling of the you know, somatopain sensory pathways, and there is no benefit to us to feel chronic pain. And mm -hmm. chronic pain, we, we now know, although we've known actually for a while. So chronic pain, we've known for a while, responds better to multimodal treatment. So what do I mean by that? Well, as opposed to acute pain where you could just give one medication and the patient's going to heal and they're going to feel better and everything's fine, mm -hmm. We know that chronic pain responds better to pharmacologic and non-pharmacologic treatment and pharmacologic treatment and something called rational polypharmacy, where you add maybe an, an, you know, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug along with a low-dose opioid and acetaminophen. And you combine all these medications because they, they target the pain pathway at different areas. And so you're getting synergy. And the same thing with non-pharmacological treatments in terms of, you know, massage and um, heat and cold and acupuncture and cognitive behavioral therapy. And so the more things that you can include um, to help this person, the better off you are. If you try to treat chronic pain, severe chronic pain, um, where the patient is suffering a great deal, with just a single medication, it's very challenging. So we try to include as much as we can. The problem is that it's hard to find right? Mm -hmm. One, it's hard to find. Two, it may not be covered by the person's insurance. Right. Thankfully, because of this whole opioid crisis, which may be the silver lining, there's been much more focus on making these alternative treatments that have, you know, that are evidence-based, making these treatments more available to our patients. I still hope that some, I still hope that someday I'll be able to just send my patient to a comprehensive pain management program where they will be fully assessed mm. and will have an option to be treated with all different types of modalities um, to, mm. you know, to, to adequately treat their pain. But right now, you know, we're stuck. There's essentially there's a financial misalignment favoring the use of medications for chronic pain. It's a whole lot easier for me just to write a prescription than it is for me to get someone into physical therapy, behavioral medicine, acupuncture, chiropractor, you name it. It's challenging. Hmm. 
Can you share some recommendations on how providers can effectively talk to their patients about opioids and the decisions behind the prescription dose and duration? Yeah. So um, because of all of the publicity around the opioid crisis, Mm -hmm. it would be rare to find a patient who's not familiar with what's going on. So now it's become much easier to talk to patients about the risks of opioids. However, as with any risk of anything that we do, you know, we talk about shared decision-making in primary care around, you know, prostate cancer testing, uh, you know, prostate-specific antigen testing, PSA testing, um, and other um, treatments where you're asking for shared decision-making. I find that patients have a very hard time appreciating risk as it applies to them. Mm-hmm. Um, they can understand risk as it applies to the world at large and everybody around them, but it doesn't always apply to them personally. So it becomes very, very hard to convince patients that they're at risk for an overdose mm-hmm. and death if they you know, take more than, than is prescribed. But it is really important to talk to patients about the risks. And you know, oftentimes I'll use a teach-back method where I'll ask them to repeat what I said and make sure they fully understand what I'm saying to them and how I'm going to try to minimize the dose um, and minimize the duration uh, as long as, you know, it's beneficial to them or, you know, based on how they're doing. But again, how they're doing is very subjective, so it's hard. But I do, you know, educate them about the risk. I do educate them about what I'm looking for in terms of benefits. I'm looking for improvement in function and quality of life. Uh, And sometimes I get that you know, information collaterally from family members or co-providers. Um, but, you know, you do the best that you can with the limitations of seeing someone for 15 minutes in a clinical practice. It's, yeah. it's quite challenging. Hmm. And how do you identify whether your patient is actually addicted to opioids? And if they are, what do you do? I mean, you talked about this a little bit already, but um, perhaps you can go into a little bit more depth into that. And uh, how does scope of pain tie into all of this? Yeah. So the question about is my patient addicted is an interesting one. The first thing is to remember that addiction is not the same thing as physical dependence. Physical dependence is a biological adaptation to being exposed to an opioid. And that means that if you stop it abruptly, you're going to go through withdrawal. Mm -hmm. And there are other medications we prescribe that also cause physical dependence, like medications for high blood pressure, clonidine, beta blockers, meaning that if you're going to stop them, you need to taper them. Otherwise, the person's going to go through withdrawal. So it's not unique to opioids, but it's important to distinguish that because sometimes patients and their families think that physical dependence and withdrawal means addiction, and that's not the case. Mm-hmm. Addiction is really kind of out-of-control behavior. It's a loss of control, compulsive use, continued use despite harm. Mm-hmm. So what do I mean? So loss of control, they cannot take it as prescribed. They keep running out early. They're showing up in the emergency room. Um, it's just this out-of-control behavior. Compulsive use is really this preoccupation with the opioid. That is, everything else you recommend, you know, we talked about multimodal care. Mm-hmm. Everything else you recommend to them, they don't want anything to do with it. All they want is more medication. Mm-hmm. And so they're becoming overly focused on the medication. And then thirdly, you know, if they're suffering negative consequences from the opioids, like they're slurring their words, they're falling, they're not getting out of bed, they're, you know, everything is falling apart around them because they're unable to function and they want more, they should want less. They should say, you know, this medication is making me feel cloudy. 
Mm-hmm. I want less. So when you start to see those things, loss of control, compulsive use, and continued use despite harm, I start to worry about addiction. However, that all being said, that out-of-control behavior, I need to ask myself, is this because of poor pain control? The person's out of control because their pain is so bad? Or is it addiction? Mm-hmm. Um, and it can be both. It can be a kind of addiction and severe out-of-control pain. Mm-hmm. Now, just because the person's pain is out of control doesn't mean I need to increase their opioid. It may mean that the opioid isn't working. Um, you know, we know from some longer-term studies, and I talked about the limitations of the research so far, but mm-hmm. there are some longer-term studies up to like 7 to 12 months that only about 50% of people with chronic pain will get um, an adequate benefit. Um, in, during that short period of time. And so that tells me that about half of people will not get any benefit from that opioid, no matter what dose I put them on. And I'll put them at all kinds of risk if I increase the dose. So, mm-hmm. so it's having those tough conversations with patients that, you know, although we tried the opioid, but uh, it didn't seem to work. And doesn't mean I'm not going to continue caring for you. I'm just going to care for you without an opioid. So, you know, it's time to stop the opioid. And, and I remind patients that I'm not abandoning them. I'm abandoning the opioid because mm-hmm. it's either not beneficial or it's harmful to them. And so I keep the focus on the risk-benefit framework. I'm not doubting their pain. I'm not doubting the severity of their pain. I'm not doubting their suffering. In fact, I want to be very empathic about their pain experience. I'm just saying that the opioid is not working or it's causing them harm. And sometimes you need to agree to disagree. Um, but again, I'll ask the patient to repeat, why do you think I want to make a change in your opioid therapy? Why do you think I want to tape your opioid therapy? And if they say it's because you don't believe I have terrible pain, then they didn't hear anything I had to say. If they say, because you don't think it's helping me or you think it's, you think it's hurting me and I don't agree with you, well, at least they, they've heard you and you can move forward. But um, there are definitely times when patients will leave my office upset mm-hmm. and that doesn't feel good at all. Um, I, you know, I remember one example where I spent 45 minutes with a patient um, trying to explain why I wanted to taper the opioids. It was just awful. And patients stormed out. And, you know, now I'm late with all my subsequent appointments. So all my patients are upset. They had to wait. And so I'm just feeling terrible about the entire clinic day that I had. And then um, when I'm writing all my notes, I get this um, call from the front desk saying, you know, Mr. X just wanted to let you know, thank you for ruining my life. Wow. And so it's like, and that can, you know, that can make you feel bad for a while. And it certainly is not, it was never my intention. And, um, and it just, it feels bad because you want your patients to, to leave feeling better and feeling good and, and happy with your care. And so, you know, these are the challenges that we, we face when we're doing this kind of treatment. Scope of pain benefits from the fact that the creators, me and, and others, um, are basically folks who are in primary care and taking care of these patients. And so we appreciate the challenges. And and because so much of the challenge is around communication, we spend a lot of time, um, we spend a lot of time focusing on how do you say things? You know, what are the words that you should use when talking to patients about these things? And, and so I think that becomes very, very helpful for folks. Mm-hmm. It's not just about the facts, you know, what, what's the evidence of, you know, what's the harm, what are the risk factors, you know, we go through all that stuff. But to me, the challenge is getting in the room with somebody. And, you know, we made a case base because, um, frankly, these things can just seem very easy. 
mm-hmm. um, when you think about them, it's like, oh, the person, you know, their urine drug test was an unexpected finding and they're not doing better. So this is how you would taper them. But meanwhile, you've got somebody in your office who's crying, who's, you know, clearly in a lot of discomfort. And it's, it makes it that much harder to say, you know, listen, I'm going to stop this treatment because it's not helping you and it's hurting you. And I'm not sure what the next options are. You know, being able to admit to the patient your um, limited ability to to manage something that's so terrible for them. Yeah. However, I would argue that just being there with them, being empathic, listening to them mm-hmm. is therapeutic because I can guarantee you that these patients' families don't want to hear about their pain anymore mm-hmm. and want to know why they're not getting better and why they're not just getting out of bed and getting going. So I think in some cases, the therapeutic relationship and your willingness to listen to them and be empathic can be therapeutic. So don't discount that. And so even though if you have no other options to offer somebody, um, tell them that you still want to care for them. You still want to be there for them and, um, and just meet with them and listen to them. And, and that can be helpful too. But I would say that even though, you know, you've tried lots of things, I would say it's always worth retrying things, retrying different combinations. Um, One physical therapist is different than another physical therapist. Mm -hmm. Um, And so trying to get people into, you know, again, multimodal care is the best approach. And uh, I wouldn't give up on options that someone may, may have said, oh, I've tried that. It didn't work. I certainly have patients who say, oh, I've tried ibuprofen. It didn't work. Well, they didn't try it in combination with acetaminophen, um, which they would take together, or they didn't take it in combination with a tricyclic antidepressant at night for their neuropathic pain. Or, you know, so there are certainly combinations of therapies that people have not tried. And so I would, you know, there's all it, I've never run out of options, but if you were to run out of options, again, just being there for them, being empathic and listening, I think is, could be very therapeutic. How did you get involved in this work of pain? It sounds sounds it seems like such of uh, such an interesting topic. But what drove you to do this work in the first place? Yeah, so um, I got interested in this before it became front page news. Mm-hmm. In fact, it wasn't a very sexy topic at all. Um, I got interested in back in the kind of mid nineteen nineties when I became. Well, I had two positions. One, I was a primary care doctor at Boston Medical Center, treating patients for diabetes and hypertension, as well as chronic pain, some of whom were already on opioids. Um, So that was one job. The other job was that I was the medical director of a methadone maintenance program Mm. at the Boston Public Health Commission. So I was seeing people coming in with opioid addiction, asking for treatment with methadone. And some of those patients who were coming in for addiction treatment had developed an addiction after being treated with an opioid for their pain. It wasn't always the case, but it certainly was some cases. And so naively, but importantly, an important lesson I learned, I asked a naive question of these individuals. I said, listen, um, you know, you developed an addiction to your oxycodone that was prescribed for your rotator cuff injury. What can I learn from your experience? How can I prevent this from happening to my primary care patients who are on opioids. What can I learn from you? And they, you know, time and time again would say, don't ever prescribe these medications. They're terrible. They ruin your life. They cause addiction. And so it wasn't surprising that they had no perspective beyond what happened to them as an individual. 
But on the flip side, I was seeing some patients in primary care who seemed to be doing just fine on the opioids. We're not developing an addiction. So I got very interested in, so why is that? So why is it that this medication can be so terrible for some people and for others can really make a big difference in terms of their quality of life and function? And so I just started doing research and attending meetings and conferences and just got completely immersed in it. And I'll tell you, the first times that I was asked to give grand rounds or give talks on this topic, you know, people just didn't show. It was, you know, small turnouts Hmm. as opposed to once, you know, this crisis started to be recognized, like in the 2010, 2011, um, we would, you know, advertise a course and within 48 hours it would be filled, you know, 200 people would have to shut off the registration. Hmm. So it clearly became... Uh, an important topic for folks to learn about because they were struggling. You know, they were being told opioids are good, they're safe, you should be prescribing them, we're under treating pain, you need to be more aggressive. But then there's all this, you know, overdoses and people misusing opioids and it just turned, you know, it was a disaster. And so people really, people meaning, you know, healthcare providers Mm -hmm. started really looking for answers and help. And so we got into this um, during that time where, People, you know, actually we started um, our education program before Scope of Pain with a a safer opioid prescribing course that um, started because the Board of Registration and Medicine in Massachusetts came to us at Boston University and said, we need help. We're getting all of these complaints Hmm. um, from patients and from pharmacists and from families and from providers that... um, this is out of control and you know, they need to learn how to do this. And so we got together and we put a curriculum together. And, and like I said, these courses were filling within 48 hours wow. of being advertised. It was just amazing. Final two questions. Uh, yeah. What can learners expect when they participate in Scope of Pain? You talked a little bit about this already, but just wanted to circle it back to this question. Yeah, I'm really proud of Scope of Pain. And um, so they're, they're, there are a couple of things that people can expect. I, one, I think it's we've made the course engaging because it is case-based. Um, so it's you know one case that you follow over time, and so I think it makes it relevant. Um, but I think it also because we have complete control over the content of the course, we can update it on a daily basis. And as you know, there's lots of evidence being published. Um, There isn't a journal that I get these days that doesn't have some new study that's relevant Mm -hmm. to this topic. And so we just keep changing and updating and adding. And and I think we've developed a really um, nice evidence-based educational program that's engaging and relevant. Um, You know, and all of it is within, you know, two hours. And so I think that that makes it very doable. And, And the nice thing is there are different formats for people. I mean, we we have monthly webinars that are live that people can attend that are free. Um, we've got an online program that people can do at any time they want that's free. And we recently developed a podcast. Um, so oh. these are six 20-minute episodes that are, again, um, I think are engaging so that people – I mean, I've gotten really good feedback that people enjoy listening to them. And so people can listen on their you know, drive to wherever – to, um, you know, six 20-minute podcasts and get the entire content. So there are lots of different ways to do it. Um, And I welcome people's feedback. Um, We constantly 
um, change it based on audiences saying, you know, I think this would be better if you did it this way, or this is unclear, or you know, this didn't make sense to me. And so um, I love getting feedback and want to make this chorus better moving forward. Cool. And future plans for the scope of pain. Anything in particular you want to mention that is being planned in the future folks should be on the lookout for? Yeah, so I think, you know, the future is really just, again, to incorporate all the new evidence, um, Mm -hmm. to keep it all within two hours, which I think is plenty long for people, um, and to continually think about different formats um, that people can access it. And, you know, that's where the podcast came from. And we also created these mini podcasts, these five-minute kind of episodes that address kind of the most common struggles that people have, like, oh, you know, this patient has an unexpected urine result. What am I going to do during that visit? You know, all within a five-minute episode. And so um, my feeling is, you know, we've, we've kind of developed the content. The question is, how do we package it in a way that meets everybody's needs so that they can access it no matter what they're doing? And because I know everyone's busy and people are, you know, struggling with COVID-19 and telemedicine and so forth. So we're just trying to... Um, to make it convenient for them to learn this content, because I think we've got a lot of catching up to do. Um, You know, I alluded to the fact that, you know, it's not surprising that folks struggled with this because it wasn't covered in medical school or residency training. Mm -hmm. And yet you go out into practice and chronic pain is common and you're inheriting all these patients on high dose opioids, or you have patients already in your practice on high dose opioids. And what the heck do you do? Um, so we need to get everyone up to speed quickly. And that's what I hope scope of pain is able to do. There's a lot of recommendations and national guidelines, including the CDC guideline. And I think if you look at these as just checkoff boxes, that is, you know, urine drug test done, you know, uh, patient provider agreement contract done, uh, check the prescription drug monitoring program done. If you focus on that, on just getting stuff done, then you're doing a disservice, actually, to your patients. I think you need to think about your patient's experience. Um, How do they interpret these urine drug tests and pill counts and prescription drug monitoring program reports? Do they feel they're being treated as a patient? You don't want patients feeling like they're being treated as a suspect or a criminal. Um, And so we really need to continually think about what is the patient experience, We need to keep these things patient-centered. And I'll tell you, it actually makes this whole thing more enjoyable. Um, Otherwise, you're just, like I said, checking off a bunch of boxes, and there's nothing uh, enjoyable about that. But if you think about the patient's experience, you think about what benefits you can offer the patient in terms of the quality of their life, and maybe you're the first provider who's been willing to say, I believe you have terrible pain um, and being completely legitimately empathic with their suffering, you might actually really develop a nice relationship with this patient who other providers may have really struggled with. Mm-hmm. And I've seen that in my own practice where, you know, I have some patients who are very, very thankful and it's not like they're on high dose opioids. In fact, you know, some of them we've tapered off their opioids, but they've developed this kind of relationship with me just because I was there for them when they were struggling to find anybody willing to, to treat them because these patients can be incredibly challenging and frustrating, um, but it can be made much more enjoyable by kind of diving in to find out more who the patient is, educating them, 
explaining to them that you believe them, that you want to continue caring for them, even without opioids. That's awesome. Okay. Well, Dr. Alfred, thank you so much for joining us on this edition of Inside Healthcare. We really appreciate you taking out time to talk to us today. And we will definitely chat with you sometime in the future. Well, thank you very much for having me. And uh, thanks for your interest in this topic. Awesome. Great. And that does it for this edition of Inside Healthcare. Before you go, make sure you register for NCQA's upcoming quality innovation series at ncqa.org backslash QI series. This live streamed and on-demand event will feature talks and seminars from over 40 healthcare experts over a three-month period starting September 17th. Thanks again for joining us. We will see you again. All the best. 